This is a Federal News Network podcast. Extreme weather and purported climate change are ongoing threats to federal buildings. The Smithsonian is no exception. It houses 155 million artifacts spanning, oh, most of human history and beyond. But the system's museums and storage facilities do risk flooding and other damage. In fact, that's already happened in the National Capital Region. Smithsonian officials appeared before the House Administration Committee last week. Federal News Network's Amelia Brust has more. Now, Amelia, a lot of the buildings on the mall have been worried over the years by the fact that underneath the mall, there is something called the Tiber Creek, which has flooded the IRS building from time to time. Washington, that's why they call it Swamp Hollow, because it was built over wetlands. But we're talking about new types of risks. And what is the Smithsonian worried about right now in this area? So the National Mall is on the 100-year floodplain, which means it has about a 1% chance each year of getting the amount of rainfall needed to flood that area. That's a designation that FEMA resets for localities all the time based on new historical storm data. And actually, as Representative Mary Gay Scanlon of Pennsylvania noted during last week's hearing, Hurricane Ida earlier this year brought a 500-year flooding to the Brandywine River Art Museum up in Pennsylvania. So these kinds of storms can happen a lot more frequently than the name would suggest. One of the witnesses at Thursday's hearing is Fetmano Fenevong of Atkins North America Engineering and Design Company. He said that going forward, engineering planning processes should really be thinking beyond the floodplain markers if they want to account for rising sea levels. In fact, DC new comprehensive plan and also the, the federal element by National Capital Planning Commission recognize the future condition. We need to start to, to take that sign down to the engineering level and, and planning level, what would look like in different scenarios so that we can plan for, you know, either we want to be there or we want to be, you know, strengthen our building, existing building to against a new reality. I think that's where we are right now. I mean, the technology and science there, I think we just need a policies and the way that we design and construct. All right, some good advice there. And Amelia, have any of the museums on the mall had flooding or that type of damage yet? Yes, the National Museum of American History, which is where things like the First Lady's dresses and Judy Garland's ruby slippers, all those things, have seen um, water get into the basement storage and even around some of the exhibits already. The Smithsonian's facilities director, Nancy Bechtel, said it takes trained and available staff, though, to respond to those types of instances because they can often happen after hours. About five years ago, they started preparing more of their staff to respond to those emergencies. We have established, starting in 2016, a training program that for preparedness and response in collections emergencies. And we have stood up an SI-wide team of professionals that actually would come in to have any type of emergency would come in to respond. That team is made up of our security workforce, our maintenance workforce, our operations cleaning workforce, as well as those collections managers. And so with this team approach, we feel comfortable in being able to respond to really any sort of emergency. And that's Nancy Bechtel of the Smithsonian 
We're speaking with Federal News Network's Amelia Brust. And Amelia, is the Smithsonian going to ask for more money to, say, weatherproof their buildings or whatever they need to do to mitigate the possible flooding damage or flooding itself? Well, the Smithsonian got $35 million in FY 2020 and FY 2021, which it said went towards reducing its maintenance backlog. But that inventory is still pretty substantial. It's grown to more than $1 billion worth of projects. And according to the Smithsonian's Inspector General, Kathy Helm, that makes it hard for them to keep their facilities in the condition needed to withstand extreme weather. She told the committee that many of the projects intended to address flooding are in fact, deferred maintenance projects. Ms. Bechtel told the committee that the institution sets aside about 1% of its annual budget for maintenance facilities each year, but the industry average for cultural institutions and museums is more in the range of 2 to 4%. Now, the Smithsonian has just gotten two new museums authorized by Congress last year. That would be the National Museum of the American Latino and the National Women's History Museum. And those could end up on the mall. Is that a smart thing to do that the hearing determined? Or what can we expect for location and floodproofing of those new structures? Yes, it's an important question. And it's one that Rodney Davis asked of Ms. Bechtel. And she said that right now the Smithsonian is looking at 24 possible sites for those museums, two of which have flood risks. She was also asked, though, about the resiliency of the African-American History and Culture Museum, which is the newest Smithsonian institution on the mall right now. That opened in 2016, and she said that one is actually pretty flood resistant with the mitigations and design features they put into that building. So just as two examples, we have flood walls that are actually built into the design. They serve also security functions. They also hold water back and they're beautiful. So they serve all three purposes. We also built in redundancy in our equipment. So in several of our such things as our water pumps and several of our pieces of major maintenance equipment, we actually built in redundancy so that if something happens to one piece of equipment, I will be able to run another pump and to be able to keep pumping that water out if that water table was to come up, whether it's through flooding or some other emergency. Again, Nancy Bechtel of the Smithsonian. And what are the other concerns about the collection that might be related to changing weather or climate? There's high winds. There's temperature changes that affect building structures and make it difficult to maintain climate control within the exhibits and storage areas. The institution has a master plan right now to add to its to its collection storage facilities in Northern Virginia, in Dulles, and in Suitland, Maryland. At the Suitland site in particular, those buildings date back to the 1950s and 60s, and one of them actually collapsed under snow and wind in 2010. And the next year, another building there was damaged by the 2011 earthquake. But the Smithsonian's new 2021 Climate Action Plan includes some sustainable design features proposed for some of those facilities. Federal News Network's Amelia Brust, thanks so much. Thank you. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including commander, 
Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean 
And you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.